And so in the place of that, there is emotionalism. There is um, uh, dramatic displays of faith and uh, being in the Spirit, what is known as being in the Spirit, where uh, you you feel that the Holy Spirit has moved upon you and has filled you with an ecstatic uh, love and power. And I'm not denying that those experiences happen, but those experiences are given primacy, even if they're disruptive, even if they are out of order, even if they uh, seem um, out of place in any way. Um, the preacher can be giving his message, and then a woman just get up and scream her lungs out, and then everybody smiles and nods like, yep, God touched her. You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Thank you, everybody, and welcome back to our conclave sessions. This is our 1030 uh, session from the Reverend Mr. Joe Revels on Evangelical Christianity and Gnosticism. The Reverend Mr. Joe Revels is a North Georgia native and was raised in the evangelical movement as a Southern Baptist. He felt a call to ministry early in life and dedicated himself to the service of God while still a teenager. However, his curiosity and outside streams of thoughts and his own values conflicted with those of his own tradition, and he began seeking a spirituality that better fit his nature. He found such a tradition in the Apostolic Joanite Church, and is happy to bring its distinct style of sacramental worship to the Deep South. Reverend Mr. Rebels has a bachelor's degree in religion and philosophy from Barry College and is a member of St. Raphael's Theological Seminary. He currently holds minor orders within the church and uh, isn't just undergoing review for ordination to major orders. He is sitting awaiting the diaconate, which COVID has put on hold, but we are currently working on plans to get that rectified as things are now starting to thankfully uh, ease up. Uh, very much appreciate this opportunity to speak on these matters. Um, <clears throat> And um, it's important for me to note that speaking about evangelicalism, um, it's going to be uh, seriously modified by my own um, by my own experiences within evangelical churches in the community. Uh, this is not a fully objective uh, academic assessment, although um, it, it is that. But it, it's an academic assessment, but it is not objective, uh, at least not entirely. Um, because, you know, I have been steeped in the evangelical community for the majority of my life. Um, also, uh, Protestantism in general, and evangelicalism in particular, is varied and multiform. Um, I'm going to leave out details. Uh, anything I say about the evangelical community, it will be likely that you can think of an evangelical church within it that does not fit that. Um, I'm forced by the sheer breadth of the subject matter to uh, focus on broad trends and tendencies and uh, and then where detail, greater details needed, sp sprinkle in my own personal experiences as uh, a Southern Baptist and a seeker within other uh, communities. So um, <clears throat> I just wanted to begin with that 
a caveat um, because uh, I feel the need to say that also because all of the, the talks so far in Conclave have been so excellent, have been really professional grade uh, for people that are not getting paid to do this. They're putting out um, professional grade work um, worthy of, of many, uh, if not all, academic institutions that I'm familiar with. And so I really appreciate their contribution. And uh, it's a very tough act to follow. So first of all, what is evangelicalism? I'm going to talk about a number of major points to establish uh, exactly what it is. And probably the, the most uh, obvious uh, is a departure from established tradition and ritual. Uh, when you study history, you find that evangelicalism is markedly different uh, than the previous forms of Christianity. Um, I've, I've heard it said, uh, it's funny but also true, uh, you cannot know church history and remain an evangelical. And it's true. It seems as if evangelicalism believes, you know, and broad strokes uh, believes that the church began in 1611 with the publishing of the King James Bible and that nothing before that really counts uh, going back uh, roughly 1550 years to the Acts of the Apostles, that between the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles and uh, King James, um, history is essentially irrelevant. And that plays into the anti-intellectualism of the movement, which I'll get to. But it is a departure from the established tradition and ritual that was in place in the church for those 1,550 years and after. Um, first of all, um, what I call scripture uberalis. Um, we've all heard, most of us anyway, have heard the term sola scriptura, but evangelicalism takes that to its logical, or dare I say, illogical extreme. Um, the scriptures are the end-all, be-all of all forms of faith and practice, and if it is not in the scriptures, it is not done. If it is ridiculous and um uh, something considered beyond the pale that's in the scriptures, then that will often be shunted into the, um, the uh, interpretation that it is only for the Jews or only for that time period. Uh, for example, um, you know, stoning of disrespectful children and things like that. But at the same time, um, there is an acknowledgement that those things still have value. Uh, even though they are not practiced, uh, apparently arbitrarily at times, uh, they are still treated as, you know, with utmost respect, because evangelicalism, many movements within it, uh, practice what I call a form of bibliolatry. They worship the book above the one who inspired it. And, and so even passages that have to do with slavery, because of those passages, there are evangelicals that at this moment are speaking, preaching, uh, doing podcasts that justify human slavery uh, within a biblical context. Um, and they realize that that is uh, irrational and beyond the pale, beyond our acceptance of, um, you know, humanity, human um, uh, dignity, etc. Um, but they stand against it because the Bible says... Um, the Bible says slavery is okay if it's carried out in this way. Uh, 
They don't attempt to defend uh, the chattel slavery of America during the uh, you know 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, but they say, well, but slavery itself as a conception can't be wrong because God gives rules for it. Um, some of the uh, uh, provisos about putting women out of the camp while they are on their periods and things like that. Well, that that's just the Jews though, and that doesn't apply to us. So you see, it it creates a situation where even though Scripture is paramount, I mean truly and deeply paramount, they have a tendency, I would say almost universally, to have a cherry-picked, pick-and-choose version of what they follow. They'll say, I believe, I've had a preacher who said to me, I believe in this Bible from holy Bible to genuine leather. Because, you know, the back of the Bible say genuine leather, and, you know, cover to cover. But that said, the, the same preacher still, you know, picks and chooses what they emphasize. And let me say, too, that um, this picking and choosing is uh, dependent on the particular branch of evangelicalism. For example, uh, I was raised a Baptist and then went to a Pentecostal church. And the scriptures that were quoted and alluded to and put emphasis on in the Pentecostal church were so different from those in the Baptist church, it was like they were reading from a different Bible. I mean, I was sitting there flipping my Bible the whole time saying, is that even in the Bible? This reference in Psalms, this reference in Proverbs, this reference in a minor prophet. And I'm like, I've never heard that in, you know, 30 years in a Baptist church. I've never heard anyone mention that or preach it. But in a Pentecostal church, the preacher says it. And then everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, shaking their heads like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Showing that he had mentioned it or it had been mentioned before. So I said all that to say that uh, even though uh, Scripture is all important, how that Scripture is applied is just as varied and multiform as the evangelical movement and the Protestant movement as a whole. And it can sometimes get hypocritical, uh, or at least it is um, uh, many times non-systematic, except Calvinists, for example, are highly systematic. Systematic theology is their calling card. And they, I've said before, they look at uh, worship of God as culminated in the Bible, period, uh, with nothing else. And the Bible is essentially a geometric proof to be solved. And once you have solved it, then regardless of how monstrous your interpretation may be, that's what's on the page. And it's the only way to make it all make sense with each other, which I feel ignores the fact that the Bible was written by, uh, you know, uh, shepherds, kings, uh, you know, widows <laughs> or widowers, you know, spread out over, you know, thousands of years. So um, it's it's an art book. It is a mythological book. It is a historical book in part uh, that's trying to be systematized into essentially Euclid and, um, you know, misses the forest for the trees. So, um, so the first point, just to sum up, Scripture uberalis, uh, Scripture... Um, Without tradition or reason, um, you know, we I know of some traditions that'll say the three pillars of tradition, reason, and and uh, scripture. Um, they knock out the other pillars. Um, tradition when it's useful, uh, you know, but generally rejected. A reason when it's useful, but generally rejected. Just the scripture. Things that were formerly sacred are now profane. Uh, 
uh, sacramental theology, for example. That's not to say that there isn't sacramental theology within the Protestant movement, um, with obvious exceptions being, for example, the Lutherans, uh, the Methodists. Uh, but it is modified. It is diminished. Uh, I mean, even Luther Lutherans had to come up with a new word because um, transubstantiation isn't exactly right. Um, they have consubstantiation, I believe. Um, there's a couple more substantiations in there. Um, and um, Methodism is, is practically a... Um, well, I'll get to Methodism in a minute, just to say that Methodism was an attempt to bring sacramental theology back into the movement. Um, but uh, even when sacramental theology exists, it is an expurgated version. It is reduced. Uh, instead of seven sacraments, there are two. Instead of the infinite mysteries of the Eastern Church, uh, there are only ordinances. Um, ordinances being we're told to do this. It doesn't have any kind of salvific or uh, other power, but we're just expected to do it. The, um, uh, the Lord's Supper... Uh, the uh, baptism and foot washing as a sign that, you know, uh, I've seen that on church documents where they have uh, two ordinances and then foot washing as a sign. So it's essentially an ordinance in all but name uh, carried out at regular intervals, uh, but uh, not a sacrament by any sense and certainly does not feel the idea of uh, sacraments being a uh, font of grace or things like that within broad parts of the movement. Of course, let me just back up and say, Protestants may have sacramental theology like Lutherans, but Lutherans are not evangelical, at least not most of them. Of course, there's evangelical branches of nearly anything, but um, I just wanted to make that clear. Another thing that's formerly sacred that is now considered profane, and that's important, not sacred, and, I mean, you have sacred and profane, but in between them you have mundane, right? Mundanity. It, it's, you know, a piece of wood. Uh, within Christianity, a piece of wood is neither sacred nor profane. Within certain, um, you know, earth-based religions, it can be extremely sacred. Uh, but within, you know, the Christian church, I just throw that out as an example off the top of my head. But things that were sacred are not mundane. They are profane, for example, Mariology, Mariology that is uh, so important to um, Latin churches and their derivatives and is important within the AJC uh, in many cases. I mean, even uh, Bishop Tim has said to be a Joanite is to be a Marian. Um, it is not only irrelevant, it's not mundane, it is evil, it is profane. How dare you show any special treatment towards Mary. Um, you're worshiping Mary. You are, um, you know, it's a heresy. It's, it's hateful to God, whatever. Um, infant baptism. Once again, granted, uh, there are uh, Presbyterians and Methodists that do practice it, but within the, 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 by and large, within evangelicalism, infant baptism is not practiced. If you're looking at sheer number of individuals within it, uh, Baptist, Pentecostals, Charismatics, um, uh, infant baptism. Infant baptism, like I said, is, is um, 
uh, it is practiced among the Church of Christ. So it is practiced some, but it is largely considered profane within the movement. Um, things like angelology, um, invocations to angels, uh, praying for protection from St. Michael, uh, that is profane. Uh, even something like novena candles, uh, lighting candles, having incense. Um, I know Calvin, for example, wrote harshly against those things. And um, even non-Calvinistic evangelical groups, um, they hate that because it smacks of you know being a papist. Even though they wouldn't know what a papist is, many of them, um, that that's what Catholics do. And, and there's a strong, um, there is a strong, uh, I guess you could say current within the evangelical movement that says that Catholicism is not even Christianity. Um, within the um, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, the Pope is called the Antichrist and the Beast and everything else. Um, so it, it reaches its, you know, ultimate form within that movement, for example. But, um, I mean, it is it is a Protestant movement. What are they protesting? The Catholic Church. It makes sense to be anti-Catholic to a point uh, or rejecting of Catholic uh, traditions or mores. But they take that to, once again, its logical or illogical extension to not say it's wrong, but to say it is full-blown evil. Uh, this will come up a lot, the anti-intellectualism of evangelicalism and its emphasis on emotionalism. Um, within the uh, evangelical churches that I'm familiar, um, there is a tendency to downplay any kind of secular knowledge. Uh, knowledge of the Bible is fine. But any other form of knowledge is secondary to knowledge of Scripture. And personal emotional investment trumps that about every time. Um, there is a hostility to an educated pastor coming into an evangelical church. Now, within the Southern Baptist Convention, there is an effort to oppose that. Um, there are, they, of course, have, uh, I believe, six or seven. Um, um, seminaries, excuse me, six or seven seminaries um, that educate people, give masters of divinity degrees, etc. But they are really the minority. Um, even if they come in, they have to pretend to be less intelligent. I have seen this happen. Um, and we'll get into why that is in the next section. But um, there is a um, a common phrase of, you know, I'm just an old country preacher. It's almost like Matlock. You know, it's like the chicken from Futurama. It's like, well, I don't know nothing about, you know, about all this stuff. I am I am an uneducated man. I was a farmer's boy. I, I You know, we woke up in the morning and we had us a biscuit and a streak of lean. And then we went out and we slopped them hogs till noontime. And mama called us in. Like, they go into these tirades establishing their bona fides to say how uneducated they are. And keep in mind, this is someone who is standing before a congregation um, expounding upon the Bible to them. A book that um, has existed in some form for uh, nearly 2,000 years, including that 1550 where nothing happened, 
and they're trying to, you know, expound upon it. I mean, to an outsider, that is ludicrous. I mean, imagine any other context. Imagine it at work. Imagine it at a team meeting at McDonald's where the manager comes in and goes, well, I don't know nothing about the manual here or the proper way to run the place. But I know in my heart that I'm meant to run the show here. And I think this is what you need to do to run the show here when I'm gone. I mean, that's insane. But that is uh, often the baseline of many evangelical churches. That, because if he comes in and says smart words, if he quotes Greek, I had a pastor who came in and knew a little Greek. And he mentioned the Greek meaning of words in the New Testament. And people were responded negatively. It's like, who does he think he is? He's just one of them big city preachers, you know, knowing these things. You know, how does he, how dare he knows things? Um, and, um, and so in the place of that, there is emotionalism. There is um, uh, dramatic displays of faith and uh, being in the spirit, what is known as being in the spirit, where uh, you, you feel that the Holy Spirit has moved upon you and has filled you with an ecstatic uh, love and power. And I'm not denying that those experiences happen, but those experiences are given primacy, even if they're disruptive, even if they are out of order, even if they uh, seem um, out of place in any way. Um, the preacher can be giving his message, and then a woman just get up and scream her lungs out, and then everybody smiles and nods like, yep, God touched her. Uh, of course, the opposite of that would be the Quakers. But see, the Quakers just sit quietly until that happens. So th there's nothing to interrupt. They give primacy to it to the point that they don't even have a regular, uh, I mean, they, they have a little bit, but I'm just saying that uh, they just sit quietly and wait for somebody to jump up and holler. And, um, and so that fills in uh, the, the whole left by intellectualism, by the lack of intellectualism. And we have the perfect example of this in the Billy Graham crusade. I mean, the Billy Graham crusade was practically its own great awakening, um, its own third or fourth or fifth, whichever we're on, Great Awakening, uh, where uh, Billy Graham, for anyone who doesn't know him, uh, was a very famous uh, pastor uh, and evangel uh, evangelist in America who uh, traveled um, to you know every major city and um, and even many minor ones and would rent out entire stadiums. And people would come and, and he would preach, you know, to 10,000 to 50,000 people at once. And then they would have an altar call at the end where people would come down and pray for salvation. And they came in the thousands and then he would move to the next city. And uh, uh, that um, uh, that model was is emulated was and is emulated by many people. There's a lot of evangelical preachers who think that they're supposed to be Billy Graham. Um, and this, this bleeds into the idea of theatrics over liturgy. Um, liturgy, literally the work of the people, um, is minimized, diminished, or even non-existent in many cases in the evangelical church. Um, the, um, the focus of the church is not you know, um, a catechism or a call and response 
it is uh, it is what I call rock and roll church, and we've been moving towards that. And even within the evangelical movement, there's a lot of opposition to the rock and roll church model, but it's still being drawn inexorably that way, which is the people come in, they sit down, and they view the spectacle. You have singers, you have regular choir singers, you have special singers, uh, you have a preacher get up there and say a little and then sit down and a different preacher get up and it's just you, it, you know, the service produces and you as the laity receive. Uh, it is put at you and you receive it. Uh, you are not expected to do anything. Uh, you're expected to sit in your chair and occasionally say amen. If you're asked to sing, you sing. If you're asked to come down and pray, you ask you come down and pray, but there's no mental engagement, um, really. There's no, um, you don't have to read. I mean, you don't even have to crack open your Bible. A lot of times, the only time people crack open their Bible is when the preacher begins to preach and he says, turn your Bibles to, and he reads a scripture, and then you put your Bible down, and you're done. There's no book of common prayer. There is... Um, uh, there is just a theatrics. You are a you are sitting in a theater, and you're no more expected to take part in what's going on than you are at a movie. You you sit and you observe. Um, this theatrical, um, this theatrical aspect uh, sometimes flares up to the extreme. For example, a few generations ago, you had a man named Billy Sunday. What an excellent name for a uh, evangelical preacher, a Billy Sunday. Uh, they used to put up flyers for him like a boxing match, and he would be, you know, Marquis of Queensbury, and it would say, you know, come see Billy Sunday fight the devil this Sunday, you know, at this tent revival. And, um, and so that just, I mean, Thankfully, that's not as common, but just to give the idea, I mean, it is a spectator sport. It is a huge event, and uh, you want to see who gets the knockout. Uh, another part of evangelicalism, which I'll talk to later, hopefully I don't run long here, um, is um, a personal unmitigated connection with the divine. Now, that should sound very familiar to a church full of Gnostics. Gnosticism is emergent in Christianity, both in isolation and in conversation and dialogue with other movements within the church. It always has been. Um, you, it, from the earliest records we have of the church dating back all the way to the second century, you had Gnostics rising up. You had Valentinianism. Uh, you had uh, perhaps even before the Christian Church Scythianism, but it it certainly Scythianism became you know highly Christianized very quickly in the early centuries. Um, I can't remember all of them, but I mean you had Bogomils um, that arose in Bulgaria, but then the Cathars arose in France. Now, obviously, the Cathars had influence from the Bogomils. I mean, a huge influence. But the Catharism is not the same. It's not the same. It developed its own way. So um, sometimes you would just have an area in Asia Minor, and Gnosticism would rise up. And it always took a similar form. N none of them are identical, but um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go into the aspects of Gnosticism. I'm sure you've all heard that or read that ad nauseum, but things like the... Um, the elevation of the feminine to equal or even superiority to the masculine, 
um, the uh, emphasis on the uh, on personal experience uh, and the um, uh, the evil of matter, um, things like that, versus the purity of spirit. These things arise naturally, and they arise out of evangelicalism too, which I'll talk to more in a minute. But just to say, as as an aspect of evangelicalism, personal unmitigated connection with the divine, the born again experience. And in my own process from a Baptist to a Johannite, um, the idea that the gnosis is what saves you instead of the blood of Jesus Christ, that was a real sticking point. Until one day I made the revelation that the born-again experience is a Gnostic experience at its core. No Baptist would call it that. No self-respecting evangelical would call born-again a Gnostic experience. But how is it not? It is something that no one else can take part in. No one can pray your salvation onto you. No one can impute it to you. You have to accept the gift. You have to have a, and you can't just say the magic words, despite the fact that sometimes butts and seats evangelicalism reduces it to that. Um, Any self-respecting evangelical will also tell you, you can't just say, dear Jesus, please save me, and that count. You have to feel something. You have to experience something that is salvific and life-changing. The change of life is an important part of that. I think, you know, anybody can have a, a supernatural encounter, but it doesn't necessarily change who you are. I mean, I have seen a dark figure stalking me in the night before, and that's an interesting anecdote I may tell one day, but that did not change who I was. It scared me crapless, but it didn't change who I was. But the born-again experience is intended to be something that changes you. You are a different person when you get up. And and there are other experiences like that within the church that are emphasized. Within Pentecostalism, for example, you can lose that salvation. And so you have to have that experience again in order to rewrite yourself with God, to correct your relationship. And um, I'm sorry, I'm having to ignore chat right now. I'm, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I, there's so much I need to get through, and I really don't want to run over. But I see it's not really questions, but uh, helpful comments. I appreciate the support. Um so another thing that is um, uh, an unmitted connection with the vine is uh, speaking in tongues and other gifts of the Spirit. Uh, that is emphasized differently in some traditions. Uh, Presbyterianism, uh, by and large, downplays such things. Uh, Pentecostalism is literally defined by it. Baptists kind of straddle the fence. Uh, a lot of people around here will call themselves Baptocostals because they are Baptists who go to a Baptist church, but if someone were to get up and start speaking in tongues, they wouldn't have a bad thing to say about it. Other Baptists consider that ridiculous and profane. They're called cessationists that believe that all those gifts were just to build the early church and then they end. But either way, um, these spiritual gifts are obviously an unmitigated connection with the divine. And I say unmitigated, meaning no priesthood, no intermediary, uh, you know, Jesus Christ, who is God by the Trinitarian doctrine, comes down, or the Holy Spirit, who is God by the Trinitarian doctrine, doctrine. You know, they come down and they trouble the waters of your heart. They uh, they touch your soul or whatever, and uh, you um, you are filled with an ecstatic frenzy of of power to prophesy, to preach, uh, to heal. 
And of course, I've mentioned it uh, just briefly, but there is no pro, there is no priesthood. Um, priesthood is something that is sacred within traditional churches and then profane within an evangelical church. They may use the language of it. I know a lot of African-American churches will call their pastors bishops, uh, and that has its own tradition, but the bishop within that church would not be recognizable as a bishop within a Catholic or a Johannite community, for example. Uh, they are not over other priests that are then over deacons and over parishes. Uh, they are essentially a pastor, uh, but they're using it in its traditional use as an overseer. And it blurs the distinction between clergy and laity. Um, the pastor is the pastor because he is called. He announces his call. And I say he because it's a he. Um, I'll get to women in the church in a minute, but generally it's a he. And... Um, and the people accept him or don't, or they, and if they do accept him, then they may license or ordain him. But at any time people can withdraw that and, you know, and say, you're not fit to be a pastor. Um, there is no apostolic succession at all. And in fact, it is mocked. I've heard it used called a pedigree, a der der derisively, you know, some kind of holy pedigree, uh, it, it is mocked. Um, there is a democratization uh, of the church so that uh, the distinction between the laity and the clergy uh, is a very thin one and one that where laity can get up and preach. Uh, laity can hold uh, positions within the church. The only ordained people in the most part are pastors and deacons. And with some communities, those are considered to be completely separate things that shall never touch. Uh, some are actually offended by the idea of pastors, uh, other than the main presiding pastor serving at the table of communion, because that is a deacon's job, uh, or deacons preaching, because that is not their calling. They're called to deke and not to preach. Um, but that isn't always the case, and in some cases, those are a little more fluid. But uh, clear lines between clergy and laity are practically non-existent and are there mainly for um, practical reasons rather than spiritual reasons. We need someone in charge. You know, who's going to do it? Uh, <laughs> not so much, you know, you are ordained or you are um, chosen through lineage or through a pope uh, to do that. And and as a um, as a... As an adjunct to this, also no angels. Evangelicals are very quick to say, I almost had a car wreck, but an angel intervened. Uh, the idea of angelic intervention is part and parcel of the evangelical experience. However, it is of life or death importance that you never speak to an angel. Praying, speaking to a divine being is praying, and praying to angels is worship, and worship of angels is sin. If you disagree with that, well, that, that tough, that's the evangelical stance, by and large. Uh, of course, there are exceptions, I'm sure, but I've never encountered them within an ex explicitly evangelical church. Um if you say, well, I saw an angel and I spoke to it, you were immediately looked at with suspicion, with derision, with fear, 
Uh, they fear for your soul. That is the path of dark side. Uh, the devil appears as an angel of light. They start quoting, and you don't do that. So um, the invocation of angels in the Johannite church to open a liturgy, um, it was also a very different step for me, um, a stumbling block almost, um, because it was so different from what I came from. This is something, this next part I kind of penciled in while um, Jonathan was speaking, so um, just bear with me. Um, there's also restricted personal practice. Um, when you practice your faith on your own, you have two options, prayer and Bible reading. Uh, singing counts, but singing, it, I would file under not personal because you can sing communally. I'm talking about something you do by yourself. Prayer. Uh, you cannot pray for others' salvation. So the idea of pronouncing someone sinless or um, or any of those things, uh, even intercessory prayers, okay within very strict, broad, you know, very strict guidelines. I mean, not broad, very strict guidelines. I can't pray someone into salvation, but I can pray for their salvation and let God handle it. It is important that prayer is extemporaneous. Any kind of prepared prayer is frowned upon, um, not necessarily profane, but it is the product of a weak faith. Um, you have to just come up with it on the spot. You can't think about it beforehand. That would be intellectual. You have to speak from your heart, emotional in the moment, and let God handle the words. And, and of course, the most extreme version of this is speaking in tongues, in which no one can understand what you're saying anyway, unless they're specially gifted to, and it's just between you and God anyway. Um, but not it's certainly not prepared. Um, also, uh, you can't accompany it. Um, no candles, no incense, no rosary. For God's sake, no rosary um, if you pray. You can sing while other people are praying, but um, like in a congregation, but privately you can't pray and sing, so, uh, you know, you're praying alone. Well, that's all. Second is Bible reading. Bible reading can be more directed. Um, there's no Lectio Divina, uh, but a scripture a day is fine. Uh, Bibles that are designed to help you read through the entire Bible over the course of a year or two years. Um, and also, you can listen to tapes or pastors telling you about the Bible. That's fine. It can be directed if it's scriptural. And to be honest, I think something, a practice like Lectio Divina would be widely embraced in the evangelical church if it did not have a uh, Catholic origin and a monastic bent. Um, but the actual practice itself of reading through a scripture that's important to you, focusing on particular words and meditating and praying upon them and then, you know, um, you know, chewing chewing and then swallowing the scripture, as it were, as it's described, I think that would be highly popular within an evangelical setting. It's just uh, unknown to them and also smacks of papacy and so would be, um, uh, you know, derided on sight. Now, King James onlyism is pervasive but not universal. Um, King James only, uh, just for anyone who may not be aware of it, I'm sure most of you are, but it's the idea that the King James Version of the English Bible is the only acceptable form of Scripture, that no book uh, after it, 
nor any book before it is valid and accepted as a form of scripture, only the King James. And I have like a 12 point speech on why that is wrong, <laughs> but that is not uh, part of this talk. Uh, but just to say it is very pervasive. Um, uh, just a few arguments in favor of that. There is a scripture that talks about uh, the word being tried seven times in the fire like silver and coming out pure. That is wildly misinterpreted to mean that there are seven versions of the English Bible and that the seventh one is the pure one, uh, thus the King James. Of course, there's more than seven versions of the English Bible before the King James, um, and uh, so that falls flat on its face. Uh, but they don't know that. Also, uh, the uh, this is from memory, so bear with me. The um, the, Gene the Geneva Bible, uh, for example, is ninety percent identical to the King James Bible. So it, you you know you read the opening in the beginning was you know in beginning was God, and uh, you know in beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you know I, you open up Genesis and read it, and it is the same book. Um, but that's not pure enough. Even though the King James Bible contains passages in it like the Johannine Coda that don't appear anywhere else, but once again, I'm getting into my 12 points. Um, but it is pervasive, but it is not universal. Um, I would say King James onlyism is a subculture within evangelicalism, but it has become so dominant that uh, I, I don't know the word for it. What is the word for a subculture that becomes so pervasive within its main culture that it subsumes it and becomes the dominant culture? But that's that's what's happening with King James onlyism uh, within the movement. So not just any Bible. So Bible reading is okay, but not just any Bible. And like I said, there are many who, even within King James only churches, that discount that. Um, I've found many people within King James-only churches that read whatever speaks to them, and they have their own preferred scripture, and that's fine. Uh, it's not considered a sticking point um, for the most part. Like It's not considered like a, um, a trial of salvation. Like, well, if you were saved through scripture read from a different Bible, then you're not a Christian. Um, that does exist, but that is considered extreme, even within King James only um, people between the movement. Um, as far as uh, practice, practically nothing else, okay, except singing. Everybody can sing for the most part, except Church of Christ or the Church of the Nazarene. They uh, frown on that. Uh, of course, the Quakers, but no candles, no incense, no processions, minimum ritual. Um, the communion is done as a ritual, but it is only done maybe twice a year uh, at Thanksgiving and Easter. Uh, Easter makes sense. Thanksgiving's because we're eating. <laughs> I mean, it's quite, it, that's the depth of the theology. It's been six months since Easter, and so we'll do it twice a year. So we'll have it at Thanksgiving because we're going to eat uh, Thursday after the, the time we have it. Um, so even where there is ritual like communion, it is infrequent and stripped down to its basic constituent parts. And um, and sadly enough, often uh, without wine. But that, of course, is another separate movement. 
Now, this this topic is poorly sourced. <laughs> this is personal research. You know, when you write a paper uh, for an academic group, it says, um, um, they say, you know, is this personal research? You know, you don't want to quote that. You need to be able to quote it. So some of this is just personal research, but you wanted to hear me, so here I am. Uh, just remember, it's all varied and multiform, and this is my take. So that is by and large evangelicalism it is not um it, it is not um exhaustive but i think that it handles all the major points that are important to us today now why is evangelicalism this way uh, particularly american evangelicalism and it has to do part uh, because of the frontier mentality the various great awakenings that take place uh, between the city on the hill Puritans and the establishment of manifest destiny, um, America was being colonized by, of course, by English settlers, but also by large German contingents of settlers, uh, French. Um, I mean, even um, I mean, you even had the um, the Arcadians that came down and became the Cajuns in Louisiana carried a French influence, but of course they stayed largely Catholic and not evangelical. And they're, they're their own thing as anybody who's ever been to Louisiana knows. But um, the, the country was being uh, civilized and colonized by Europeans. And so what did you have in these communities? You had an extremely rural community. You know, uh, you could go miles before you would hit another home or a homestead or a farm. Um, people were loggers, trappers, um, farmers. They they lived in wilderness areas. The East Coast was um, more uh, developed, more urban, more industrialized, and as a result, less evangelical. I mean, there's certainly plenty of evangelicals on the east coast of the United States, but that said, um, the the dominant uh, denominations of Protestantism uh, are not um, largely, you know, Pentecostal, Church of God, Charismatics. Uh, they're Congregationalists. Um, they are um, forms of the more high church Presbyterians, of course, Anglicans, which are, I, I, I don't use Anglican as Protestant because they kind of have a unique, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of their own thing. I don't, I think there's good scholarship to say Anglicanism is not pro Protestantism technically, uh, but still that is so non-Protestant, uh, non-evangelical in the urban areas, whereas in the rural areas, uh, evangelicalism thrived, grew, changed, mutated, brought in different streams, uh, different people like uh, Wesleyism and things like that, molded it in a frontier setting, and that's important. One thing that gets me about uh, Andrew Jackson as president, uh, he was from Nashville, Tennessee, and he was considered a Westerner because this is the 1830s, 1820s, and Nashville, Tennessee was you know, as far west as civilization went at that time. Civilization, which I always have to use with quotation marks because it is so disrespectful to indigenous people. Um, but just to give an idea of the thought of the day. And, you know, that's considered the Wild West is Nashville, Tennessee. And it's within that context in the early 1800s that you have 
the second great awakening and uh this move towards anti-intellectualism and uh and emotionalism so um brick and mortar churches were far few and far between you had traveling pastors that would go from one community to the next setting up tent revivals in later years and earlier years they would set up near a creek so that they could baptize converts. They would maybe have a schoolhouse that they would use when school was out, they would have preaching there. Um, so that's why a lot of schoolhouses look like they have little steeples and stuff is because they, they were used as churches. And so there was no center of worship. In a Catholic community, like from old Europe, you would have one church, one huge church, and everybody in town, like it or not, was a member of that church. And this is the exact opposite of that. You wouldn't even have a church. And if you did have a church, there would be one in this county and one in this county and one, two counties over. And the, the local pastor would have to move around between them, uh, preaching at one for one month and one the next month. And, um, and so this had the impact of um, creating necessity. The church was grown in extremis. Um, you don't have access to finished goods. Let, let's say you did want to have a more traditional Catholic style. I use that as an example because I'm most familiar with it. But if you wanted to have a more Catholic style meeting, how could you? I mean, uh, you don't have a confessional box, so you just have to go off in the woods. Um, access to candles, you'd have to make your own out of beef tallow if you happen to be rich enough to own a cow. Um, you know, gold, uh, even things that are fake gold, like, you know, the, the gospel, the, the book for the gospel to be held in that, that shines and, and the staves and the peasantry and the, uh, the robes, you know, you're, you know, you're essentially in wild Indian country, uh, with some French trappers left over from the last French and Indian war. Now what, you know, so this, um, this minimizing of the necessity of ritual, uh, I personally feel came out of that, that you simply didn't have the implements for it and you had to make do with what you had. So rock altars are common, um, prayer benches, just seating. You can make a chair and pray at it and call it an altar. And that became the norm. That became uh, the not only the accepted way of worship, but the expected way of worship. And if someone came in with something fancier, well, then they're an outsider, they're a northerner, they're a Yankee, they're a uh, big city so-and-so, and they don't know our ways. And so it served to condemn their means of worship. Uh, also in this is political isolationism. Um, politics and religion... Um, are always tied together because politics are the way that you take your moray, your religious mores, and put them to paper where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. Um, and um, America as a whole has been politically isolated, especially during this time. I mean, that obviously is not now. It's, it's pervasive and invasive. But at this time, before World War I, um, America was isolationist and considered Europe and the other powers to be elitist. Uh, we don't need them. We threw off the, the yoke of their power and we are separate. And so there is this isolationism from the old way of doing things. This is most obviously manifested in the difference between Anglicanism and Episcopalianism. Uh, 
where it came down to uh, priests uh, within the Anglican Church being required to to vow to uphold the King of England as the leader of the faith, and the Americans would not do it, and so became a separate branch. And then this also played a role in the war between the states, between North and South, the American Civil War. Uh, I'm obviously not going to say that slavery was not the driving force, but another important aspect of that conflict is the fact that the North um, was less evangelical. They were, like I said, congregationalists. Uh, in the South, you had more Baptists. Of course, the split between the Baptist faith and the Southern Baptist faith was over slavery. The Southern Baptists justified slavery. Um and uh, you had Pentecostalism, et cetera, and in the South, whereas in the North, that was a, a minority where it was even present. And so that, uh, once again, played into this idea of the other us versus them. Um, and now the, the South itself, the American South, is what we call the Bible Belt, it is hyper-evangelical. Like Evangelicalism exists in all parts of the world. There are missions that go out to parts of Africa, Asia, South America, etc., as well as Europe and, and Japan and places that are uh, less religious as a whole. They still make uh, small inroads. Um, but uh, here, it is woven into the very fabric of society. Um, you plan when you go out to eat based around the church schedule. I mean, quite frankly, if it is 12 o'clock on a Sunday, then you're out of luck. You plan on waiting in line for 45 minutes for a hamburger because everybody in town just went to church and all got out at the same time and they're hungry. I mean, that is how pervasive this is. Whereas in the rest of the world, church attendance is going down in such broad strokes within evangelical communities, especially in evangelical communities among uh, indigenous populations. But also here, it's it's growing. In, I mean, it's shrinking here, but but not culturally. And it's growing physically in just sheer number of converts elsewhere. So this political isolationism uh, plays into the evangelical um, lack of uh, education and culture. I mean, we all know. I mean, hopefully all of us know, because I think just about everybody on here has had at least some co college, uh, some university. Um, when you leave your home and go to a school filled with people from all over the world, and maybe even travel to other places as part of your schooling or after your schooling, you come back a different person. You, you are more cultured. You are more tolerant of other people and races. Your mind is expanded. I mean, everyone needs to do that. Um, as a personal thing, I think that there should be a way made for people of all income levels to be able to travel uh, some in their life because it is so transformative in a good way. And what we have uh, in the frontier, frontier of America is the opposite of that. Before World War I, America prided itself on having nothing to do with the rest of the world. I mean, we had the Monroe Doctrine, where if the rest of the world, like the European powers, decided to even come in our hemisphere, we would be like, no, 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 you go back. We're, we're us, and you're you, and you go back. And that creates a lack of education. It creates a lack of culture. It creates that anti-intellectualism because if you have, there's nothing wrong with being a 
frontiersman. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being Daniel Boone, and apparently he had a good heart. But he was noted when he went to Washington that he is, you know, a coonskin cap wearing yokel with a funny accent um, because he was not one of the cultured elite. I mean, he was he represented his community <laughs> because that's what his community was. Um, you know, people with a funny accent because they live in isolation. Their language doesn't change the same or as much. Um, it creates a glorification of the everyman. Um, the, the, it's, it's anti-elitist to the point of destroying the good things elitists stand for, uh, like art, literature, education, culture. Um, the, the whole idea of, I don't need any book but the Bible. Well, I mean, that, in a lot of cases, that was the only book they had anyway. And if you brought in a book from somewhere else, you were an outsider. You were someone else. Um, now, granted, there is a notable exception to this. You have like the good, the archetype of the Southern gentleman, genteel and educated. Uh, but those were uh, rare. Obviously, they only made up a very small percentage of the, of the population. I mean, just like the 10 percenters, 1 percenters of today, the people that were truly wealthy and could afford good education, et cetera, are at the pinnacle of our social paradigm. And then everyone else, you know, uh, is not. They are farmers, trappers, loggers. And you see this manifested in even the cities of America. Like, for example, if I say, what is the most cultured city in the world? Uh, probably one of the first you'll say, if not the first, is Paris, France. And that's because it was the center of culture for many years and remains one. Um, London may be mentioned, uh, Milan. There are certain cities that when you think of art, uh, opera, um, museums, you think of, well, think of the ones in America. When you think of art, museums, culture, you think of someplace like New York, you think of Boston, you think of Philadelphia, uh, you do not think of Charleston, South Carolina. But you got to realize that during this time, Charleston, South Carolina was the largest and most urbane city in the American South and in the whole frontier. Um, and uh, even Nashville, uh, which was fairly large for a frontier town, no one thinks of Nashville, Tennessee before. I mean, you think of Nashville, Tennessee for country music now. It has become a center of music. So granted, but Nashville will never be on the top five. If you think of five American cities that have a major cultural influence, Nashville might slide into fifth. Atlanta has become one only recently, only within my lifetime. Um, now that they make Hollywood movies here, they film AMC shows, they, um, they kind of have a Hollywood of the South going on in Atlanta right now, along with, of course, uh, rap, hip hop, uh, urban music that has had quite a renaissance in Atlanta. Uh, but once again, all of that has been since, you know, my lifetime in the 80s. Um, so uh, Baltimore is kind of in between. It straddles the north and the south. And uh, Baltimore, of course, is Catholic. Meaning in Maryland, they're largely Catholic. Uh, Baltimore is kind of weird. We don't claim Maryland. They were a slave state, but uh, <laughs> they uh, uh, Maryland was a slave state, but uh, it's always been kind of trying to be less the South and more the North. But Baltimore, I mean, you had Edgar Allan Poe. You, you have culture in Baltimore, but once again, diminished. The, um, so the, it goes back to this idea of um, isolationism and a lack of culture. The you know, 
even when places like uh, Houston, Texas were founded, uh, they were not centers of culture and, and still are not on the short list. It, uh, it's a, a lasting uh, result of this. And I'm, I'm bringing it to the end of my talk here. I want to talk it, it, it right now with the similarities with Gnosticism. Now, I want to start on my weakest point. They say to put your weakest point in the middle, but I want, I've got too many caveats. I put a big asterisk on this, but there is a certain equality of women within certain evangelical movements. Now, that's going to slap you in the face because women are so, so oppressed, really, and treated as such second-class citizens. But when you actually go to some of these churches, um, you get back to this idea of Scripture. By their interpretation of Scripture, women are not allowed to be pastors or deacons or hold rulership over a man. But in the most progressive of these communities, they try everything in their power to let women do everything else. They let them lead the choir. They let them uh, lead Sunday school or whatever. Um, and of course, that you're still a second-class citizen. But there is an, an emphasis, there is an attempt. Now, within some, now that's within the broader evangelical movement. Within some evangelical churches, women are given, are actually ordained. This is especially true in African-American churches. Uh, women are ordained along with their husbands, and they jointly uh, run as equals. They run the church. Um, the woman is allowed to preach. She is allowed to teach men. She is given uh, similar, if not identical, responsibilities. Uh, but these are rare. But that equality of women in a place of leadership uh, is always been um, a part of most Gnostic communities, and that does exist in some part within the evangelical movement. Um, obviously, it is not common, but I did want to make that point, that it does exist. Um, in those cases, uh, sometimes, though, the woman is more like a first lady. And like She has no written job, but she's expected to fill in certain roles and that of course is a little bit subservient as well but um next the personal experience of the divine like i said the born again experience and also a focus on things that up to and including visions speaking in tongues mystical mania um there have been uh, gnostic groups um i mean even pre-christian gnostic groups like i'm thinking of the um the makava mystics i'm saying that wrong the the chariot the jewish um feel free to correct me on that uh, makarba um um you know they would uh, have ascensions um kind of getting that whole idea of of breaking the um the mental and um uh, the intellectual part of your brain in order to have a spiritual experience. Um, that is very pervasive within evangelicalism and in fact is the is the fulcrum upon which much of the movement rotates. I mean, they do not consider baptism to be initiatic. Uh, baptism is something you do after you become a Christian and you don't become a Christian until you profess a salvation experience, the born-again experience. And so, um, you know, you, the definition of who a Christian is, is have you been born again? 
not have you been baptized and raised within the church. It is not whether you have received communion. It is have you been born again, and if you have been, then you can receive communion, you can be baptized, and you are a member of the church. And so the whole movement, like I said, it rotates upon this fulcrum of this personal, unmitigated experience with the divine that is transformative. I think Gnosis, uh, I think at its core, Gnosis, at least salvific Gnosis, has to be transformative in some way. Um, also, the war versus the world. Um, there's, of course, a lot of this within Johannine literature, um, the, the war between the uh, spirit and the flesh, but also, especially within Pauline literature, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Uh, this strong dualism is one of the most uh, Gnostic parts that come out of the evangelical movement. The, um, the, there is us, we, I mean, essentially they have an idea of the hylic, the hylic and the pneumatic um, I would say that you could almost put that without changing that Valentinian doctrine much and superimpose it in a Southern Baptist church and it would fit. The Southern Baptists are the pneumatics, the people who are born again but not Baptist, or the people who are, they think they're Christian but they're not sure, well then they handle the psychic, and then everybody outside the church is the hylic. Um, even the Roman Catholics perhaps are the hylic. And they are just driven, and the Jews obviously are. Um, but let me just put an asterisk on that. There is a strong Judaizing influence within the evangelical church, and that is pretty much its own talk. And really not necessarily something for conclave, because I'm not sure how that would really intersect with a Gnostic Christian community. But uh, that's sort of rattling in my head. So that world versus the world. And so... Um, I think all the rest of my notes here I've already articulated under other points. So that completes uh, my discussion on evangelicalism and its, uh, inf you know, its impact on me and, and the, uh, the country and, um, and us as Gnostics living within it. Uh, I really hope that this is a help, especially to people like William and others who are um, uh, running narthexes and parishes in the South. Uh, there's not many of us. And uh, we are assaulted from all sides by evangelicalism. So, um, like I said, I hope that helps you in some way. So, um, I am available for questions, comments, discussion. Um, so concludes the tale. <laughs> that was very good. Thank you. And uh, uh, very thorough. And there was a lot of stuff in there, of course, that I recognized. Um, out of my out of my own experience, and of course, it also speaks to some of the positives of my own experience. I mentioned in the chat that uh, um, you know my my conversion experience. I mean, I was raised in a Christian environment, so I don't know if you can call it conversion, but you know, my kind of come to grips with my own spirituality came out of the evangelical experience, prayer experience uh, around a campfire, right uh, at a at a at a Bible camp. And while I may have gone in a different direction later, uh, you know, fire is fire, right? And so, you know, I found that valuable. One of the things I was going to mention is there actually, there is an ancient parallel to this um, in the early church in terms of evangelical and uh, uh, even Pentecostal stuff. There was a group called uh, uh, Montanism, um, which was an early prophetic movement in the early church. And they, uh, they had uh, women as prophets. 
and, uh, and, and preachers as well. And it was an early kind of semi-apostolic movement. Um, the other thing I was going to mention, you have the tradition kind of coming out of Eastern Orthodoxy of the Presbytera the, or the Matushka, the idea that the wife of the pastor has an elder role in the community. Um, so that's mirrored out there. So, I mean, you know, for, for as much as there's lots of stuff in the opening, which shows that, yeah, there's some stuff in evangelicalism that is uh, ahistorical, um, there are a lot of parallels as well. And I think sometimes it's easy to overlook that because we, we, we tend to pigeonhole. So thank you for having kind of a, a, a thorough survey of the topic as well as some of the positives. Um, I think uh, uh, Christian had his hand up first, so I'll turn it over to him. Yeah, might I just say, uh, amen, brother, preach on that. Uh, <laughs> that was really great. I really love that. And growing up in the Baptist church myself, I really connected with a lot of that. Um, specifically, a couple of things that uh, I really got from there that I'd like to talk about a little bit was you mentioned how we aren't supposed to communicate with the angels on a daily, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, we aren't supposed to directly communicate with angels. Um, but there is that idea of like angelic intervention at really critical moments. Um, but on the flip side of that, in the evangelical community, you see that the demonic influences every day and it's always coming at you from all sides. And, um, that just kind of, it, it's kind of interesting that they, they place that emphasis that like those demons are constantly warring at with you. Um, but there isn't that connection with the angels. Um, and then also, uh, what you said about prayer and how there isn't this, like we, we, there's not like a recited prayer, right. But in a way there kind of is right. Because as I'm sure, you know, every preacher gets up on that stand and they say, you know, uh, Holy Spirit come down, open the hearts of this congregation. And then they say, you know, empty me of, of you know, in my case, Christian Max, you are in your case of, of Joe Revels and, and just fill me with the Holy Spirit. Right. And they do have this, like, you're right. It is like, it's supposed to be on the spot every time, but it's almost in a way it's very similar every time. Um, and it, it rhymes. Um, yeah. Let me just briefly say in response to that, um, there is certainly, uh, I think the way you said it rhymes, um, also among um, people who testify, you have testifying as a part of an evangelical church, and they stand up and say, uh, I just want to say I love everybody and I love the Lord. That's the, that is the invocation, and then they tell personally what God has done for them. If someone gets up to sing a song, they say, um, uh, now, y'all don't listen to how I sing it. Listen to the words of the song, not how I sing it. That That is, and I see you nodding and laughing, you know how pervasive that is. So there is, there is I mean, and, and so at that point, you can call that ritual. I mean, that is a ritual. You have to say the certain invocation. It may be short and it may be simplistic, but it is part to say, okay, I'm about to testify. I have to say, I just want to say I love everybody. I love the Lord. And now comes the testimony. Uh, I noticed within the, uh, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but let me just get this a little bit out. I noticed within a Mormon church, they would say, I just want to say to everybody that I love the Lord and I love the Book of Mormon. They actually substitute the Book of Mormon in there as their thing. I noticed I went to a testifying service with a local branch and they said that. And uh, there was a 
thing in my notes that I forgot, this is apropos of nothing you're saying, but just that Mormonism is kind of the next step of that frontier mentality. As you move away from the East Coast to the West, things get in extremists where uh, normal uh, implements of ritual are not available. Well, then the Mormons were kicked out of the West and had to go even further West. And to this day, they take communion with regular loaf bread and water which I find personally offensive, but it's almost like a natural progression of that reduction of, you know, the, uh, the traditional implements from unleavened bread and wine to unleavened bread and grape juice to leavened bread and, you know, it, even unspecial, just colonial bread and tap water. Um, sorry, I just, I forgot to get that out and I want to say it. So go ahead, go ahead with your rest of your comments. I'm sorry. Uh uh, this is just the last one, and it was touching on your anti-intellectualism uh, comment. And, um, you know, I think a lot of that has to go back to uh, kind of like what I was saying in that in that preacher's prayer, you know, where he says, you know, empty me of, of myself and just fill me with the Holy Spirit, fill me with the word. Um, don't let me be talking, but let the Holy Spirit be talking through me. And I think in part that's tied to the anti-intellectualism, right? Because if you appear too smart, it's like, well, this guy's just, you know, he's using his brain. He's talking what he wants to talk. He's not, he's not letting God speak through him. He's trying to think about it too hard. Um, and, you know, it, and essentially God can't work through you as well. If you're bringing up a, a scholar's opinion on something, you know, that that's not what God said. That's, that's not in the book. And so... Wow. I think in a lot of ways that that it could be somewhat somewhat tied to that a little bit. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. So yeah, just thank you so much for that talk. I, that that was all I had, and yeah, I, I really appreciated that. Christina, you had your hand up. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for that talk. Um, as a uh, Gnostic Catholic, it, it is very enlightening uh, for me to hear you, um, especially uh, it's more it's more of a testimony. I regard your talk more as a as a testimony than than, you know, I'm not looking to really grade it <laughs> in a scholarly way. So I really appreciated that. Um, would it be safe sort of to conclude that? Well, it's sort of a question. Then what is so compelling about evangelicalism to to uh, the modern population? Why is it growing? Can we say that? Well, maybe it's perhaps because people are looking for gnosis. Uh, I mean, I see personally some cousins, you know, that immigrated to the United States from Mexico to to the United States, so they were Catholic. And then came into these communities in the Midwest and converted, and and you know I see their posts and I'm like oh my god, <laughs> but you know it's this is useful. This talk is useful for me to understand what makes it compelling, perhaps to to some people that maybe it's because they're looking for gnosis. Maybe it's because um, it's this descent of of the Shekinah going back to Jonathan's talk and and the process is brutal. So, so it's going to get there any way it can, and, and maybe perhaps people are looking for these experiences that are, that are more emotional, that are more raw, instead of um, uh, receiving them from, from a priest. Um, uh, well, <laughs> um, no, that's a very good question. Why is it that evangelicalism still... Um, because it is so much rooted in the past, why is it still relevant and 
is growing today. Um, I mean, even evangelicals that are around now like to talk about the 1950s as if it was some golden age and we need to get back to it socially. They um, they fight against the um, the social change and movements of the 60s, et cetera. And, um, and of course, ignoring the fact that in the 1950s, it wasn't as if black people were really treated worth a damn, right? So it, even though they look back to that time, they're inadvertently putting their foot in their mouth in that regard. But um, part of it, I believe, is the experiential part of it. I think you're right. Um, they may not know what Gnosis is, but they don't want to go to church and balance their checkbook, right? And that that's a common thing I know among some people that have left Catholicism, for example, that they just sit there, they stand up, they sit down, they kneel, they stand up, they sit down, they kneel, and then they sit there and balance their checkbook. And I guess we're good. I mean, we don't have to pray because the priest prays for us, you know, and um, they're certainly not practicing on their own. I, I feel like Catholicism actually has a lot to teach um, other religious um uh, streams about uh, the importance of personal practice, but um, they, um, I think people do seek experience. Um, I also think, uh, ironically, there is a call to traditionalism. Um, many millennials, and now even getting into the Generation Z, are they have been raised within a transformative time where. You know, the a lot of the movements of the 60s, for example, the, you know, the equalization of races with, you know, a, a black people and other minorities being treated as equals as the norm. There are always people who don't and there's institutional racism, but the societal moray is black people are equal to white people. I just use black people as a as, you know, a short form for all minorities, but just because they've been treated so poorly and still are. But they've they've seen the ex, the expansion of that and there's nothing wrong with that in particular but also the 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 change of the church like for example how many catholics were upset about vatican II, and you had you know where they no longer they did the mass now in the vernacular and it doesn't have to be in latin and things like that and so much so that you had catholics break off and say you know um, said a, I can't say the word, said a vacanists that say that the Pope's not the legitimate Pope and all of this, um, what are they doing? They are going back to the tradition. And what strangely, which I think Dr. Bray, uh, Dr. Bray, well, I mean, he's basically a doctor, a uh, doctor of the church, um, Father Bray, uh, Bishop Bray, soon to be, um, he, um, he touched on this fact that the younger generations are horribly like strongly desirous of more traditional forms of worship and often that manifests in evangelicals leaving the evangelical church to go to more sacramental apostolic style churches like catholicism lutheranism etc but i feel like among the unchurched among people who have no religious upbringing their tradition is evangelicalism you know evangelicalism while on the world stage is a very new movement uh only dating back maybe 300 years or so um within american culture especially uh it is the pervasive normal traditional view of god is the you know the baptist preacher guy or whatever 
um, you know, the he eats his fried chicken and he's got a big belly and he comes out and, you know, preaches a sermon under a tent. And that's their that's their parents. That's the religion of their parents and their grandparents. So when they're drawn, when they are in a unreligious setting and they look to traditional religion, ironically, they're looking at evangelicalism as that tradition rather than what you or I may look to as more pre-Vatican II Catholicism as traditional. Uh, and also, finally, I would say they are evangelical. I mean, what does the word evangelical mean? It means a, a uh, comes from the word for angel. They are messengers. They bring the good news. Quite frankly, evangelicals are very good at going somewhere that they are unknown and unwanted and getting people to agree with them. At the end of the day, they, they're the ones kicking down your door to get them into church. And some people, they would like a spiritual life, but they don't even have enough background to articulate that. They just feel there's something missing. They don't know what that means. And then someone shows up and says, you know, has anybody told you about Jesus Christ? And they say, I've heard of the guy. And they're like, oh, we owe everything about Jesus. We, we cornered the market on Jesus years ago. Come to this church and then have this great meeting, and you have free food, and everyone claps you on the back and tells you what a good job you're doing praying, even when you're praying poorly, because praying at all is better than not praying right. And all of this, they, these ideas, so people that are scared of praying wrong, or even though that's really not a thing, we know, but just saying, those, they, they get through those picadillos and say, come on in. That, that openingness, I mean, when you open the doors, people are going to show up if they're looking for something. And that's true within any movement. I hope that answers your question. Thank you. <laughs> Monsignor Scott. Hi, Joe. Hey. Uh, I don't know how many people know this, but I was involved in the Foursquare Gospel Church when I was in New Orleans. And uh, I also took up with a guy who was really big into Herbert W. Armstrong and British Israelitism. And if you don't know about British Israel Israelitism, it's definitely something to look up because it is off the wall crazy. Um, but, he, but he was definitely uh, into the uh, idea of uh, the Bible being the inerrant word of God to the point of he didn't believe that Christmas and Easter were the right holidays. You should keep the three Jewish high holy days. And so he would go to the different um, preachers and find the ones that were meeting on Saturday because they might have an actual understanding of the Bible. And so I followed this guy around for a long time. His name was uh, Fred Snyder, and he was he just fun to talk to. He just had this wonderful understanding of the Bible that was completely different than a Catholic my, raised like myself understood. Um, eventually, of course, I got away from that. But uh, it, I think part of the, the appeal that you were talking about is simply the accessibility um, the fact that you can walk in there and they're doing things you recognize. They're reading, they're uh, talking, they're um, singing, and reading, talking, singing. And everybody has emotions. Everybody knows what emotions are. It's very easy to get caught up in that. Um, I went to a couple of uh, prayer um, meetings and had that, uh, that ecstatic experience during the prayer meeting. It was very, very cool. The problem I had was when I went to the preacher and listened to the preacher talking about Ecclesiastes and I'm reading Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books, and he's interpreting it. And everything he's saying is the exact opposite of what the text is talking about. And I'm like, what? 
And that was kind of my my exit from that is just, okay, they're they're making it up as they go along. And that that did not sit well with me. So that's kind of my experience and I can see it mirrored in what you're talking about. And uh, I definitely have a, a sympathy with the, the music and the, the textual uh, practice that they do. I mean, they do have a very deep textual practice with the scriptures. It's, I have that sympathy with that. And I think that's a good, um, uh, good practice and something that recommends the, the movement at the same time. I think they lose a lot, like you say. There's so much that they reject, and there's so much that they they give you that narrow path. So, thank you. This was a wonderful talk. Well, I, I, you brought up something that I feel like is a glaring hole in in my talk. I appreciate your kind words, but not talking about biblical inerrancy, I feel like I really dropped the ball on that. I mean that that could have been that could have been the whole topic. Nearly, it goes so deep. Uh, I really should have mentioned that, but. Um, the the whole aspect of biblical inerrancy is part and parcel with evangelicalism. And I think what you said reminded me of something else. Uh, converts are not disciples. And Jesus told in his great charge was to make disciples of all nations. And going back to the Billy Graham crusade, that is a perfect example of getting converts without discipleship. Um Disciples followed Christ. And that, I mean, when we talk about we're a Christian church, I feel like that that's really the crux of it. Uh, when we talk about being Christian, we obviously don't follow any, you know, rhyme or rubric as far as what would be considered orthodox or proper within these, or even orthoprax necessarily, although our orthopraxis is fine with, from a Western uh, liturgical perspective, it's garbage compared to an evangelical perspective. But the, the idea of, you come into a place, you preach everybody, preach to everybody, and then they come down in droves. They have an altar call. They pray for Jesus to come into their heart, and then you skip town. And that is not making people into disciples. And that that was that is an argument that is within the evangelical church. I know at least one person has kind of taken my remarks here in a negative light uh, towards evangelicals. Um, but to see, this is something that is a problem in the evangelical church that even evangelicals recognize. This idea of butts and seats theology. We get people in the door, but if you're not teaching them how to be like Christ, which what is teaching people to be like Christ? To say he who is without skin cast the first stone. To literally give your life up for people out of love, uh, both physically, like literally dying, but also to live. I mean, what's the old quote? It's, it's easy to die for someone. It's hard to live for, uh, for them. Um, and that is discipleship. Um, you know, to, you know, Peter is a, cleaning his nets. He's a fisherman. Jesus says, come and follow me. And he drops his nets and walks away from it to drop the mundane needs of life and to pursue the spiritual uh, that's discipleship. It is not uh, just, you know, saying the prayer and saying, yep, I had a, a experience, and now what? <laughs> and now what? Um, and I feel like that's kind of what happened to you, is you had this, you know, you went to the prayer meeting, you had this amazing experience, but when it came to discipleship, it fell short. It definitely fell very, very short. <laughs> so uh, next... Uh, so, 
know I'm on Karen's phone here, but this is actually great. Yes, um, live, live. I, I prefer Karen's voice to yours. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so too bad you got me. So, uh, no, I was wanting to comment on some of the things that I noticed as to why it is that I think evangelicalism is a little bit more popular right now. And there was a, a working as a hospice chaplain. We have a very large uh, Mexican immigrant population here in Colorado. So what really surprised me was that while many of them were evangelical and there is a huge population of, of uh, immigrants like this moving into evangelical tradition, very, very strong charismatic. And yet, as they were laying there dying, what they wanted, what they really wanted was a sacrament. So my curiosity was why it was that that they were living one way in the church, but that then as, as things really came down and nitty gritty, why they wanted the sacraments, why they wanted a priest closer to their own interests. Um, and that was honestly a lot of what I did. What I found that it was is about community. They felt as though being able to go there and, and avail themselves to a much larger community and one that felt uh, a little bit more like a family reunion than a lot of the Catholic churches do. And honestly, even more than like my ceremonies do. My services, I think that there's a sense of family, but it's not anywhere near the same. To piggyback off of that, um, there was another church, a much larger church than ours, and that right before us in the same area, and they had tons of people, many, many youth coming in. And as I talked to them, it was that same sense of community. And in that respect, being mainly a, mainly a white congregation, it was actually more about dating. I mean, many of the youth were showing up there, not because they believed so much in Christ, but because they wanted a, a community aspect where they could dress up nice, where they could put their best foot forward, where they could put on them be their best self to go out and meet people in a more uh, dating capacity than they felt as though they could have, like bars or online or things like that. And that was something that was just a near constant trend. Difficult. I remember talking to the pastor there about how it was difficult for him to, to get to engage younger people in actual theological discussion, that they were much more interested in the mixers and the community environment associated with that. One last thing, and I promise I'll stop, and I would love to hear your comments on all of this, as uh, I was also teaching a, a course recently in folk magic, and I was looking into the roots of uh, like conjure and hoodoo and some of these uh, more Afro-American and Afro-Caribbean kind of cultures and how it was that they brought into that. Now they found that while they often draw from the saints and certainly in areas like um, like Haiti and places like that, it's very integrated with Catholicism and, and their old Orishas and, and divinities just kind of took on new saints and, and those kinds of things. They also found that the form of worship inside of evangelical tradition and the the you know the ability to have more charismatic dances and you know to 
you back to the way that was uh, more in line with the, the sense of worship that they were comfortable in. It resonated a little bit more. And I want to be really hesitant with all of these because, as William said the other day, it's not my voice, it's my observation from that time. But these are three things that I've noticed um, in the different areas that I've been walking that I thought, yeah, that's an area that evangelicalism does very well, that in building a community in a different way that I don't think that we very well do. I think that we kind of fail at that a bit. Yeah, we need more cowbell. Yeah. Anyways, thank you. I always need more cowbell. <laughs> um, I did a, uh, I spoke on this topic um, on talk gnosis with uh, Jonathan Stewart and I did not want to just rehash the same thing as that, just in case anyone had seen it. And if you, if you've watched it, you know that I, I went a very different way with this one. He, he, Jonathan Stewart, um, and anyone who may have helped him, I don't know of anyone who may have, but his questions for that, um, interview were remarkably good. Like they, they were so good that it's that kind of genius where you're like, you know, if I had had all day to plan these questions, would I have even come up with one as good? And uh, I didn't want to touch on that. Um, I didn't want to cover that same ground, but something that, that is relevant to your question that was covered in that is some of the things that the Gnostic church can learn from uh, the evangelical church. And uh, one of them is that the building of community, the, um, uh, there are so many evangelicals. I mean, and there are so many evangelical churches. There are so many evangelicals. And I mean, we all know this, everybody who's a member of the church doesn't necessarily have the means or the desire to contribute money, right? To the cause. But there are so many evangelicals from within so many miles of me, for example, that I live on this very short road. It's probably about a mile and a half long. On this road, there are four churches. That means that there are enough people who are willing to show up consistently and give money to cover rent, power, utilities on four buildings within a mile and a half of my house. Um, the, the sheer staggering amount of material wealth that that takes compared to the pocket change that our parishes run things with is staggering. And while obviously, you know, there's a tendency to talk about money uh, with a certain amount of, you know, uh, disgust, it's like that's a material matter. But Jesus said, you know, your heart is where your treasures lie. If, I mean, you, you burn through the hours of your life in order to earn money. And so you are literally giving your life to what you give money to. And so that, on one level, I feel is a good indicator of devotion, not because, you know, I'm a Baptist who passes around a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket in order to get money from everybody, and I won't let you leave till the bucket's full. And by the way, I know a church in my area who has done that on multiple occasions. I'm not saying it like that. Uh, I'm not looking at the church as a money-making enterprise. I'm just talking about as having a place to have worship. And um, so community building, and not just community building, but devoted community building, people devoted to the plan. And that's, and that's just money. I mean, all of these churches have yards that have to be mowed. 
And there are people who give of their own time, who bring their own, uh, you know, driving lawn mowers and have to hitch them to trailers and bring them to mow them on, on a regular basis, whether there's anyone there or not. Um, there's someone who has to actually go write out those bills and pay everything, some deacon or member of the church. Um, there's someone who has to have an extra set of keys to come in so that they can use the church for a, a practice, for a Christmas play. I mean, there's a lot of people involved. And they do a lot of stuff. Um, there's dinners, there's uh, lock-ins for children where they play video games and stay up all night. I mean, um, there's a lot that the church does in a community building aspect in the evangelical church, especially uh, that, um, that, you know, we should strive for. Those are good goals to have that. Um, and this ties into uh, Father Bray, this ties into your talk about, um, uh, oh gosh, I just lost it. Um, uh, I'll have to circle back to it if I remember it. I, I, I had a very good point. That, millennial, that, millennial currents and church and the youth. Yeah, um, it, it's not quite that on the nose, uh, but it, it did tie that. Um, but uh, let me go to the next point. Uh, you were talking about um, hoodoo practitioners. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I actually follow a hoodoo group on Facebook. It's funny you mention that because I'm fascinated by Protestant esotericism. Um, hoodoo um, is a African diaspora religion like voodoo, uh, Santeria, and some others, uh, where it is a blending, a syncretic blending of uh, essentially Yoruba, um, Yoruba religion, which the Yoruba is a, a group of uh people and ethnicity that lives in Western Africa and, and made up a large component of the slaves that were brought uh, to the Caribbean and America. Um, their religious practices incorporated with Catholicism in one particular way become Haitian voodoo, incorporate another way become uh, New Orleans voodoo. Um, but in the South, you have what's called hoodoo. Um, and it, and a completely unrelated to African diaspora, you have what's called powwow, which is a Germanic uh, Protestant magical practice brought over by the Dutch primarily, uh, but also Germans, Pennsylvania Dutch, etc., cetera, um, where they were mainly root workers. Uh, it's definitely a um, what you call a folk magic tradition. And when they came to America, there's different plants and the Native Americans uh, taught them about plants and that was incorporated and they do a lot of plant work uh, coupled with specific scriptural readings as a way of making pronouncements to heal the sick and things like that. Even a friend of mine has a grandmother who is essentially a wise woman who says that there's a certain verse from the book of John which can be read and you blow into a baby's mouth and it will heal the baby of thrush which is a condition brought on by excessive antibiotics or an imbalance in the, uh, in the flora of the mouth, um, a dryness and cracking and things like that. So, I mean, that's, that is, I mean, how much more magical can you get? You know, I say the scripture, I blow in your mouth and behold, your, your baby's mouth is going to get better now. Um, so it, what fascinates me is how on the surface, Evangelicalism is, of course, very anti-occultism, very anti-esotericism. At the same time, it proves to be a um, 
a garden in which folk magic traditions readily grow. Just like in Catholicism, uh, you know, on paper, they're very much against such things. But in practice, especially in Mexico, for example, folk magic traditions within Catholicism uh, are pervasive. So um, I don't I don't really know how much that incorporates what you're saying, but just the uh, the idea that um, it's difficult to uh, to put evangelicalism in a box, uh, there are so many different threads, even ones that go into African diaspora um, and connect on that level. Um, Absolutely, I think that I think that that's a, a great summation. Thank you. And we've, we're going to take one more question from Jason, then we'll cap it for time so people can do some running around or grab some lunch and get ready for the afternoon. Uh, Jason, your question. Uh, yeah, uh, hopefully this won't take, I won't ramble too long to get to the actual question, but um, uh, so part of what I found fascinating was uh, a lot of the, the overview around anti-intellectualism. But what also seems like uh, sort of something that goes hand in hand with that is uh, is a certain amount of of emotional validation, uh, like a lot of, of engagement of, of the emotionality of, uh, of faith and, and, um, and, uh, uh, also thinking a lot about how, um, the, the other talks have also kind of gotten into some of the psychological approaches and the usefulness of engaging and validating emotions, um, in obviously with, with balance to it. But I guess, uh, is that, and, and oh, sorry. And then maybe the last thing that I've I've just thought about is that just spending lots of years as a parish member, having sometimes seen people come in almost specifically so that they could be validated um, uh, and how, how perhaps like, I guess my question is that, is that part of, uh, of the, of that appeal of evangelical uh, uh, practice or is that, is that just maybe a, um, uh, an element of how, of its approach having that appeal? I'm not sure if that's a, if that's a framed question or not, but I, I, validation really struck me as a as a powerful element of of what I'm hearing from what you're talking about. You know, I feel like validation is kind of an emergent property. I don't feel like that it is uh, in practice. Um, in practice, I mean, as far as as written, so to speak, I don't think that emotional validation would even be honored within an evangelical tradition evangelical tradition um uh you know if you were to talk about it academically um it, like if you were to say um you know you had this experience somebody says well i felt that i was born again and then you say well i don't think you were i don't validate that experience well then they will tell you the polite christian you know bless your heart version of you can kiss my butt right i mean if you really had the, I mean, and preachers will preach that basically saying, you know, you know that you know that you know, and you don't need someone else to tell you what happened. I mean, I love Jordan Stratford, the Monsignor's, um, you know, his description of Gnosis as being, you know, I may not be able to explain it to you, but I know if I'm in love or not. You you know you're in love. And, and you don't have to create a diagram to explain that. So on the one hand, within evangelicalism, uh, you don't need any validation from the community, and you have none from any kind of succession, generally. 
there's no uh, ordained person to say yes or no. Even the pastor cannot say whether you're saved or not, and he would be very, very attacked if he attempted to do that. He would be called a cult leader if he tried to say who was saved and who wasn't, or who had a legitimate experience with God, even outside of salvation, uh, uh, whatever that may, whatever form that may take. However, in practice. I think emotional validation is intrinsic to the whole affair because lacking that leadership, lacking that magisteria in place to define fact from fiction, uh, orthodoxy from heresy, et cetera, um, the, the validation comes from the community and the way they validate it is their own feelings. I had a a fellow, I call him a boy. I mean, I guess he was grown. He He's much younger than me, but I was a member of a church and his father was a preacher, although not the pastor. And one day he announced that he felt that he was called to preach. And it, no one really said anything, but it was like the whole room. There was just a collective groan. It was just like, oh Lord, not this guy. And it never came to anything. I mean, that pretty much without saying anything, everybody's like, no, you're not. Now, that kind of flies in the face of the idea of, well, if God's speaking to your heart and saying that you're to be a preacher, then, um, yeah, you are. That is your personal experience. But in practice, the community validates it. The community, which, uh, which um, um, his eminence mentioned the, the community validates it. They say, well, no, you didn't have the experience. You misinterpreted it. You were deceived, whatever. I had another guy who did the same thing. I hardly knew him. He barely came up. He barely came to the church. His mother, uh, was a regular member, but he very rarely showed up. He showed up one day. I think it was the second day he was at church and said, well, I'm called to preach. And once again, everybody's like, and, eh, no, no, you're not. I didn't no. But that said, I've also seen people, myself included, where they announced a call to preach and everybody's like, you'll make a good one. I mean, that, that was the thing that confirmed it for me is I went to the altar. I prayed. I said, God, if you want me to do this thing, let me know. In some way, I stood up and behind me was a man named Jerry Davis. I'll never forget. He shook my hand and said, you'll be a good one. I never told him what I was praying about, but he knew. I mean, that that experience happened and that was you know, that was the way God chose to validate that I was meant to do that job. Um, so to sum up, uh, on paper, it's very messy and probably discouraged to have that kind of validation you talk about. But in practice, it is regular and it is part and parcel of the, of the process. It's academically indefensible by their theology but it's practically useful and so implemented, <laughs> if that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Thank you for that answer. And thank you for the, the wonderful talk. That was fantastic. You did a good job. Um, you know, if, uh, uh, I, I, you know, talking about validation and, and things that speak for itself, um, you know, you can see, you can get an idea of why we're, we're uh, ready and itching to turn uh, Reverend Mr. Joe Revels into Reverend Deacon Joe Revels. So with that, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I won't be able I won't be able to uh, uh, be there, but uh, we can we can raise some country ham biscuits and, and sweet tea 
uh, to it at the next uh, at the next conclave. Look, man, like I've said consistently, I'm here for the good food. Okay, you know the uh, uh, you know if there's if if there's one thing evangelicals uh, you know know how to do. I mean, if you've ever been to a thing, you don't leave hungry. And that's an that's uh, that's an important part of community also. So uh, I'm I'm all about bringing that into Gnosticism because uh, obviously I've I've never missed a meal. So thank you thank you uh, uh, kindly, Joe, for that fantastic talk. And for everybody else, uh, take a break, and we'll see you again at uh, 1:30 my time for uh, fun with cults with uh, Reverend. Uh, and you ask Noel should be uh, should be interesting. If you're not familiar with uh, her story to this point, you're 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 in for a surprise. So uh, thank you again for that excellent talk and for the fantastic discussion. And uh, I'll see you guys shortly.